John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 16. The text reads like this, John chapter 5, verse 16, And for this reason, the Jews are persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus, therefore, answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, uh, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows all things, or shows him all things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him that you may marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son of God gives life to those whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. In order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're again so thankful for the opportunity to gather together to worship you and to praise you and to tell you of our tremendous love that we have for you and to uh, open your word. And we're excited to do that this morning. Open our hearts, our minds to the truth, uh, perhaps for some who've never repented, that this might be a day of repentance for them, that they might bow their knee in time to you, our God, and Christ, our Savior. We pray these things in the power of the Holy Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. Well, as we come to this uh, portion of Scripture this morning, it's a kind of a crazy title, I don't know if you looked at it, but a pretty bold claim, uh, therefore, is Jesus crazy or is he God? It's a full title, uh, but it really says what is going on before us in the text. We really come to one of the most profound uh, and compelling portions of Scripture anywhere in the Bible, and most certainly in the, the book of John. Uh, it is one of those sections I think that we probably all have read and tend to read, maybe have tended to read over and not really grasp the fullness of what's being said here. So hopefully this morning, prayerfully this morning, you will uh, see just it's just packed. It is just wonderful. The Lord Jesus making the most amazing and startling bold claim straightforward that he is none other than God come in the flesh. J.C. Ryle says of this portion of Scripture, to me it seems one of the deepest things in the Bible, as nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship as we find in this discourse. Some authors have called this a portion of Scripture before us the Holy of Holies in the Gospel of John. It's that important. So this portion of Scripture really gets to the very heart of the Christian faith and, real, and answers the question that Jesus asked in Matthew sixteen fifteen. And I've told you before, it's the most important question in the entire universe. Uh, Jesus asks in Matthew sixteen fifteen, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now your response to who you think Jesus is is the most important answer that you'll ever give to any question ever asked you in your entire life. Because that answer to the question affects how you live your life in time, and it will answer the answer that you give to that question ultimately will determine your eternal destiny. 
Everything else is secondary. Every issue that is going on currently in your life, every issue, every problem personally, or all of the problems that are going on in this country are of secondary importance as compared to your answer to that question of who do you say that Jesus is? If he is no more than just a mere man, as many believe, if he's just a teacher, if he's just a good moral example, just a philosopher, or even a prophet, then you can forget him safely. However, if he is God as he claimed, and as the writer of this book puts him forward to be, and as all Christians believe, then you must yield your life to him. You must worship him, you must serve him faithfully, because your life and your eternal destiny depends upon it. Now, this has been John's purpose for writing this book, this gospel. He wants his readers to know beyond a shadow of a doubt who Jesus is and then believe upon him. And as a result of believing, men would have eternal life. And the alternative, the alternate, right, the opposite side of eternal life is eternal death, eternal judgment. So you have to make a decision. You can't remain neutral when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. John 3 and 18, Jesus says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You have to make a choice. Now, people come and say, well, you know, they they want to protest and say, well, I don't believe all that to be true. That's good for you, but I just don't believe all that to be true. My dear friend, it has nothing to do with what you believe to be true. The issue is, what is true? What is truth? A man can jump out of the back of an airplane from 30,000 feet without a parachute and say, I don't believe in gravity. I don't believe gravity is true. Now, again, the issue isn't what that man believes. The issue is what is true. So you have to make a decision when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. And again, the most important question to ask yourself concerning Jesus is, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Now, more than likely, you've heard along the way in your life, liberal professors, liberal theologians say that Jesus never claimed to be God. He just claimed to be the Son of God. Jehovah's Witnesses come along. The Mormons come along. They esteem Jesus as a man, but they too deny his deity. And again, many others think he was a a great moral teacher, an elevated man, perhaps someone who is spiritually sensitive. But all these options are not an option with the biblical Jesus. He made specific straightforward claims to be God. And again, the heart and soul of biblical Christianity is a proper understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, in an often quoted statement, puts an end to all these fallacious arguments concerning the identity of Jesus Christ when he says this, A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that uh, that open to us as an option. He did not intend it to be so. That's a great statement. Attacks on the deity of Jesus Christ have been uh, part of the history of the church. And again, you, based on the evidence, 
based on the truth, have to make a decision on who you think Jesus is. He's either crazy, a madman, or something worse. Or he's God come in the flesh. But there's no in-between. There's no in-between position. And Jesus, Jesus very clearly, straightforwardly claimed that he was God. Again, just think back in our study, the Samaritan woman, chapter 4. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. John chapter 4, verse 25. Jesus replied in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. I'm he. John 6 and 38, I have come down from heaven. John 6 and 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51 of that chapter, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. John 8, 58, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. That is about as clear a claim to deity as you can find. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one, meaning one in essence, one in substance, God of very God. John 16, verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Right? He claimed a, another existence, an eternal existence. In his high priestly prayer, John 17, 3, uh, he, he, to, the, to the Father, he refers to himself as Jesus the Christ whom you have sent. When he was asked in his trial by the high priest, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Mark fourteen sixteen, Jesus replied simply, I am. I am. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee when I was on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now glorify me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. It is a claim to deity, a claim to be an eternal being who has come from eternity into time. One of the Lord's most favorite descriptions of himself was the Son of Man. He used that quite often. On a surface, it seems like it's a title that stresses his humanity, which in one sense is true, but it's really a title that stresses his deity. Because when Jesus uses that title, Son of Man, he's using it as it's brought forth in the Scripture out of the Old Testament, out of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. There, the Son of Man is equal on terms with God the Father, again, the Ancient of Days. That's who he's claiming to be, the eternal God. So very clearly, over and over again, Jesus claimed to be God. And either that statement is true or that statement is false. Either it's true or it's a lie. Now, if it's a lie, then you can consider, you can't, if it's a lie, you cannot consider him to be a noble teacher, etc. and so forth. He can't be a good example to follow because he's a liar and he knows it. However, if the statement of Jesus being God is not true and he doesn't know it, he's claiming to be God and he's one who's really not God, then that's what people who are locked up in asylums do, right? That's what crazy people do. Again, I would suggest to you if he's a liar or if he's insane, he's probably not a good example to follow. If he's not God and he's not crazy, then the ultimate, he would be the ultimate deceiver. He would be one who is uh, demonically wicked because he told men to trust him and to trust him alone for the eternal salvation. And if that's not true, then again, he's not a very good example to follow. If he's not God, if he's not the Lamb of God, if he's not the Savior who takes away the sin of the world, then he has to be, he must be a blasphemer who is declaring himself to be God when it's not true. Therefore, he is uh, incarnate, the ultimate form of evil. 
Again, encouraging men to trust him for their eternal salvation, knowing that in the end it will lead to their eternal damnation. So there's no middle ground with Jesus. He never left that option open. He either is who he claimed to be or he's not. And every single person in the world, everybody listening to me in this room or everybody who's watching by way of the live stream has to make that decision. It's not a decision for someone in your room next to you or your husband or your spouse or somebody else to make. Now, every single individual has to make that decision concerning the person of Jesus. And again, you either repent and believe who he is, God come in the flesh and receive eternal life, or you reject him. It's that simple. And you reject him, then you reject God's offer and mercy and forgiveness that only comes to men through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you reject him, then you will pay for that mistake eternally in a place where the Bible calls hell and a place of conscious torment. Those are the only two choices. Now you have to understand that the Holy Spirit is the writer, the ultimate writer of the book of John, correct? I mean, the, the apostle is writing, but he's really being directed under the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit through the apostle the pen of the Apostle John, who has been repeatedly telling us over and over again that Jesus is none other than God come in the flesh. So again, you deny the reality of the testimony of the Holy Spirit, then again, you're speaking against God, saying, no, my wisdom is better than your wisdom. I know more things. That's what always sadly humors me with uh, unbelief. People who say that there's no God, they're claiming omniscience, that they know more than God does because they claim to know absolute everything with absolute perfection, which is in form of insanity. Because we don't. We only know what's been revealed to us. And God in his kindness has been revealing the truth to us over and over again. The Holy Spirit says that Jesus is God come in the flesh. We saw that back in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verses 2 and 3 of that chapter speak to the fact that he is the, Jesus is the eternal creator, that nothing has come into being apart from him. Verse 14 of John chapter 1. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In that same chapter, at the end of John uh, chapter 1, John the Baptist declares that Jesus is uh, the Lamb of God. He is the Savior, the the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, one who takes away sin. John chapter 2, we saw a demonstration of his divine power, his deity on display at the wedding of Canaan when he turns the water into wine, when he goes into the temple and single-handedly, single-handedly with his miraculous power throws all those people out of that temple who are defiling his father's house, again proving that he's divine. We've seen, again, his omniscience, the fact that he knows everything. He knows what people are thinking. He knows their history before he even meets them, right? Just like the woman at the well, he knew all about her. Again, that proves his deity. The end of chapter 4, he heals the nobleman's son with just a word from a distance. Who does that but God? The top of the chapter that we're in now, chapter 5, the verse, first 16 verses, uh, I said it was probably one of the most important miracles perhaps that Jesus has ever manifested when he heals this man who's been laying there ill for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. And, and, and he heals him instantly. He heals him uh, on the spot. Again, his deity is undeniable now it's somewhat of an interesting miracle the one i just referenced at the top of the chapter because john is writing uh, uh, it's somewhat interesting that he would put this miracle in this book because john is writing to help prove that jesus is the christ the son of god and he wants people to believe and he wants people to believe therefore they can have eternal life but there's nothing in the story that suggests one bit that the man who got healed believed 
Remember, he, he didn't even know who healed him. He never thanked him. And I told you the story really is a tremendously sad story of ingratitude and spiritual blindness. And the story concludes with treachery on the part of the man who was healed because he who was graciously healed by the compassionate Christ in the end when he finds out who Jesus is, who his benefactor is, he turns him over to those who are seeking Christ's life. The false religious leaders of uh, Israel, the Jews in John's terminology. It's a sad story, pathetic and I told you, really, uh, the healing that was going on there, no doubt, was spectacular. That uh, uh, proved beyond a doubt the deity of Jesus Christ. But the whole point of the story was not really the healing. The point of the story was the response to the healing. That Jesus purposely performs on the Sabbath. Now, he's already declared that he is the Lord over creation, chapter 1. He's the Lord, therefore, over creation. He's the Lord over diseases and demons. And he demonstrates that again by his miraculous power throughout his ministry. He is the Lord over the temple. He's the one who has the power to come and attack the false religious leaders who are perverting his father's house. And he has declared the fact that he is also the Lord of the Sabbath. He has no interest in Jewish traditions that men have placed other men into bondage by concerning the Sabbath. So again, he intentionally performs the miracle on the Sabbath to confront uh, these false religious uh, leaders of Israel to expose their hearts, and he does everything. The religious leaders have no concern about the man. There's no rejoicing by the religious leaders that this man has been healed from a terrible life. The last 38 years, unable to walk, unable to move. The Jewish religious leaders are only concerned by the fact that this man has picked up his mat. He has broken one of their rules. He's picked up his mat, his bedroll. He's carrying it on the Sabbath. And someone has had the audacity to give him permission to do so. Who in the world did that? Who told you you could do that? Well, it's the same one who healed me, Jesus. So again, I told you last time, the story here of the man being healed really isn't about healing. It's exposing false religious systems. It's exposing the lies of the devil, the damning lies of the devil, the lies of the devil that trap men in false ideological fortresses. And Jesus often attacked the false religious leaders because their errors were so damning. Their errors would cost men their lives and then their eternal souls, like believing that obeying external rules like carrying or not carrying your mat could be provide you some kind of righteousness, gain you right standing before God. That's why they that's what they believed by keeping their rules that they could have right standing before God, and Jesus attacks that. But the error that he most straight on attacks over and over is the error of rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Rejecting him as the as the Messiah. Now again as we pick up the story here in verse sixteen this morning, we'll see the reason Again, why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, which I told you is something of his ministry, something that becomes a part of his ministry in increasing fashion. Jewish persecution all the way to the end till they give him over to the hands of the Romans, the Jewish religious leaders do, and they will have him executed. They will kill their Messiah. Verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, again, I told you he did it. He could have done it. And the guy's been laying there for 38 years. It doesn't matter a bit if it's one day earlier or one day later, right? He does it intentionally on the Sabbath because he is intentionally trying to expose the false religious leaders. And Jesus, I told you, has a pattern of doing things on the Sabbath because, again, he was standing against the religious leaders of Israel doing things they considered not to be legal, even extending mercy to men. 
Now, it's interesting that Jesus could have stopped at this very moment, and he could have had a lesson. He could have corrected their errant teaching on the Sabbath and given them more instruction, but he doesn't do that. Instead, what he does, again, this story this morning is coming right off the heels of that confrontation, and instead of giving an instruction on the Sabbath, he uses the opportunity to launch into a full Christological discussion, if you will. We're going, to, we're going to class here, boys. We're going to have seminary, big boy seminary. This is going to be a theology session, and I'm going to set you guys straight. So in the midst of growing hostility and persecution, Jesus launches in this full-scale forward, in this full-scale discussion of a declaration of the fact that he is none other than God come in the flesh. Now, the text before us, really, the discourse really runs all the way down through verse 47. And in that discourse, Jesus completely shuts the door if you will, on any kind of nonsensical talk that he is anything or anyone less than God come in the flesh. Now, again, remember, in the context, Jesus has been in his public ministry for months. Crowds of people are starting to follow him. The religious leaders of Israel are very much aware of him, and they hate him, and they're openly persecuting him. They've already made up their minds on who they think he is. John chapter 8, they call him a Samaritan meaning they saw him as someone who's unfaithful, an apostate, apostate, an outcast. Chapter 7, chapter 8 of John, again, they say he's possessed by demons. Chapter 10, verse 20, they say he's insane. Chapter 8, verse 41, they say he's a bastard child, that he's illegitimate. Matthew 12 and 24, they declare that he does his miraculous works by the power of hell, by the power of Satan. So the Jewish religious leaders have already made up their mind and they hate him. They consider him a blasphemer, and they continue to persecute him as he continues to declare himself to be God come in the flesh. Now, don't buy into the nonsense. Again, you've heard it. Don't buy into the nonsense of people who've never read their Bibles that say that Jesus never claimed to be God, only one who claimed to be the Son of God. I can remember very vividly a conversation with somebody in my life who went down that trail Again, not understanding what they're saying because they've never taken up their Bible to read, although they're trying to become some kind of an expert, they think, in in theology when they don't know what they're talking about. But you meet a lot of those kinds of people. The only way that we know anything is because we open our Bibles and read, amen? If we are going into, if we can look out to the the west and see a storm is coming, and and, uh, we probably ought to take some shelter and get out of the rain. If uh, we can look at the culture and the way things are going in the world and say that there's a storm coming, I would suggest we might want to open our Bibles a bit more and really know what it says. And we might want to meet more together than to meet less, to be an encouragement to each other as we see the days to draw to a close. I don't know where we're at, but I know we're one day closer today than we were yesterday, right? Jesus takes these religious leaders on. No nonsense about just being the Son of God and whatever the world that means. He claims very straightforward that he is God come in the flesh. And listen, the Jewish religious leaders got it. They understood that very clearly. That he repeatedly made himself equal with God. Verse 18 of the portion that we're going to look at here, he calls God his own Father. That makes himself equal with God. They understood that. And again, the claim is either true or it's false. It's either the truth or it's a lie. There is no in-between. If it's a lie, then he is the ultimate deceiver or someone who's insane. If it's the true, if he really is God come in the flesh, then he demands that the truth demands 
that you'd bow down before him and worship him for who he is. Repent. Give him your life. Or perish. Those are the options. Perish eternally because you've rejected God's offer of mercy through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've rejected the forgiveness that he freely offers to all men only through his son. Now what we're going to see in the text before us from Jesus' own mouth concerning the testimony of his deity is six ways in which he is equal with God. And they're laid out there pretty clearly. Six ways. Number one, I'll give you the six, and then we'll go back through them. Jesus is equal to God in his nature. Jesus is equal to God in his works. Jesus is equal to God in his love. Jesus is equal to God in his power and sovereignty. Jesus is equal to God in his judgment. And Jesus is equal to God in his honor or in his worship. All right, so number one, Jesus is equal with God in his nature. He is equal with God in his nature, in his person, but I just add this at the end, he is distinct. He is distinct from the Father as the Son. I'll get into that in just a moment. Verse 17. He answered them, verse 17, but he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Verse 18, For this cause, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his father, making himself equal with God. Now, again, remember in the context here, the Jews were accusing him of breaking the Sabbath. And again, that's why they were persecuting uh, persecuting him. But Jesus says in verse 17, my father is working until now and I myself am working. Now the first point that we have to bring in that verse or draw attention to in that verse is uh, according to Leon, Mer- uh, Leon Morris, uh, when, God, when Jesus calls, his, uh, calls God my father, my father, when he does that, he's claiming that God was his father in a very special sense. Sometimes the Jews would speak of God as our father, but never as my father. If they used any kind of terminology like my father, they would have added in heaven. They would have done something to deflect or to remove away any suggestion of personal familiarity. But Jesus comes and he uses the terminology my father. He's speaking as God in the most intimate sense that God is his intimate father. Jesus is my father. Right, so again, he's claiming a special relationship with God. And he's really claiming that he partook of the very same nature as God himself. Again, over in John 10 and 30, Jesus said, I, am the fa- I and the Father are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered and said, For good works we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So again, the Jews very clearly understood his claims. Now the issue is they refused to accept his claims. Jesus answered and said, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Again, verse 18, For this cause, therefore the Jews were seeking, and the tense of the verb means continually, continually seeking, all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So again, the Jews very clearly understood the claims that Jesus was making, that Jesus was claiming to be fully equal with God in nature. He was asserting full divinity, full deity. And again, they refused to accept his claims. But Jesus is equal with God in nature, equal with God the Father, uh, equal with him in uh, nature, uh, nature and in person, but distinct. Right? He's distinct. That's an important issue. 
and trying to understand who Jesus is. One writer puts it like this. He says, while Jesus is equal with God and sharing the same nature, he is also distinct from the Father as the Son. Jesus' existence as the Son does not imply that there was a point in time in which he did not exist and then was created as the Son of the Father. That was Arius' heresy, whose modern followers are Jehovah's Witnesses. John already made it clear that the Word existed in the beginning with God and that he created all things that have come into being, John 1, 1 through 3. If Jesus came into being at a point of time, then that verse would be false. Nor did Jesus become the Son of God when he was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, but rather Jesus has existed eternally as the Son in relation to the Father. But just as the Son is a distant, a distinct person, just as the Son is a distinct person from the Father, so Jesus is distinct from the Father as the second person of the Trinity. Equal yet distinct, functionally subordinate to and distinct from the Father. Again, we talked about that before, right? We're entering into a quick discussion on the Trinity. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, right? The Word was with God, right? There you have two, por- two portions or two people of the, of the Trinity. So again, but, but yet separate. Uh, again, the Bible teaches Trinitarian uh, distinction in, in, the, in the Godhead. Two of them, again, in uh, verse uh, 1 of John chapter 1. Christ is God. The Word was God, and the Word was with God. God with God, with God the Father, right? So again, the only way to understand that God is with God is, again, a Trinitarian explanation. And that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches there's one eternal God who's the creator and sustainer of the universe. He's the only God that exists. However, within the nature of this one God are three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three persons are co-equal, co-eternal. They are also distinguishable or distinct from one another. These three distinct persons are one God. Everything that is true about God is true about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But, and this comes from the Belgic, uh, Belgic Confession, it says, But the Father is not the Son, nor the Son the Father, and likewise the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. Three persons distinguished, not divided, nor intermixed. For the Father has not assumed flesh, nor has the Holy Spirit, but only the Son. The Father has never been without his Son, nor without his Holy Spirit. For all three are co-eternal, co-essential. There's neither one nor last, for they are all three in one, in truth, power, goodness, and mercy. Now, modalists, I think I've talked about this before, modalists or oneness Pentecostalists, uh, oneness Pentecostals, sometimes Sabellianists, you might hear that word if you're reading a theology book. Uh, They say there's no trinity. There's no, no trinity, right? Modalism is probably the, probably the best way to understand it. They say there's one God, and sometimes he is in the mode of the Father, and sometimes he's in the mode of the Son. He acts like the Son. Sometimes he's like the Holy Spirit, right? But modalism is a heresy. Just listen to this. At the baptism of Christ, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, you see all three persons of the Trinity. Matthew three sixteen. after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water and behold the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of god too right descending as a dove and coming up upon him and behold a voice number three out of heaven saying this is my beloved son whom i'm well pleased now i I give you full credit the doctrine of the trinity is difficult to understand i got that but it's what the bible teaches and to come to any other understanding about God other than a Trinitarian understanding is to reject biblical revelation. To come to any other understanding about the person of Jesus, then he is equal with God in nature, but distinct 
from the Father as the Son is to have a wrong understanding of the biblical Jesus. So Jesus is God in nature. Jesus is God in person, but he is distinct. So back to this verses here about the equality of Jesus Christ and get back to the issue of the works. I know I kind of jumped over that real quick, but we'll go back here. John chapter uh, uh, 5, verse 17. The second point of testimony from Jesus' own mouth concerning his deity is that he is equal with God in works. Not just person in nature, but works. Again, verse 17, he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Verse 19, Jesus therefore answered, and it was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man, or the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So when Jesus in verse 17 says, The Father is working, my Father is working until now, and I myself am working. Again, Jesus is linking himself with the activity of the Father. He's linking his activity to the Father's activity. My Father is working until now. That means that God's work goes on always, all the time, constantly, every second. Now, it is true, the Bible tells us, that God, when he finished the work of creation, rested. Genesis 2 and 2. On the seventh day, God completed the work which he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, and he rested from all of his works which he had created, which God had created and made. Now, when the word rested is there, it's not that God rested like we think of rest. It's not that he rested because he was weary. Because Isaiah 40 and 28 says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. So God doesn't need, quote-unquote, God doesn't need rest. Because he is the source. He is the constant, undiminished, eternal, infinite energy source. He is the power. He is the one who is working always at all time. Now, in Genesis 2, when it says that God rested, it just means that he ceased to do the work of creation. Right? And then he blessed the, uh, the, the day and he sanctified it. He set it apart as a memorial for every day that on the Sabbath the men would stop and remember God, in his uh, creative power, created the universe in six days, and then he gave a Sabbath rest. He gave a Sabbath rest to men. He didn't stop working. Okay? He didn't cease his providential work of sustaining and governing his universe, supplying all the needs of his creatures. The sun rising, the sun setting, the tides ebbing and flowing, the rains falling, the wind blowing, the grass growing every day, even on the... Sabbath. So Jesus is making a statement that just like the Father, he works on the Sabbath. Just like the Father was working. Again, nothing less than, again, a full claim to deity and equality with God. And since God shows mercy on the Sabbath, God the Father himself shows mercy on the Sabbath, Jesus, being fully God, can also show mercy on the Sabbath. And that's exactly what he did when he healed a man there at the pool. So for the religious leaders to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath is, is, in essence, accusing God of breaking the Sabbath, which, again, is exactly what the false religious leaders were doing. So Christ is vindicating himself from their blasphemous charge that he is violating uh, God's Sabbath. He's not violating God's Sabbath. He's violating their rules, their man-made rules, but he's not violating God's Sabbath. 
Because God constantly works. There's never a moment. There's never a moment that God rests from his providential government of his world. There's never a moment where he rests from his merciful working, again, supplying all the needs of his creatures. If he did for a nanosecond, the whole thing would blow apart. He is the sustaining power. He's the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. Everything would fall into confusion and chaos if God, for the moment, took his hand off his creation. And God, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who's given that uh, uh, attribute in the New Testament. He answered and said, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. Again, just as the Father has always been working to govern and sustain his creation, hold it all together, even on the Sabbath. So again, the Sabbath has no application to the divine. The Sabbath has no application for God or for Jesus' divine work. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who's made the Sabbath, and he gave it to men. And Jesus is saying, look, I've been working right alongside the Father always. From before time, always, right alongside the Father. And again, the Bible is very clear that all three members of the Trinity were involved in part in, in the work of creation. John chapter 1, we saw that Jesus was the Word. He, too, was involved in creation. So since Jesus was working alongside the Father in the act of creation from before the beginning of time, again, it's another claim to deity. It's another straightforward claim that Jesus is God. Now, again, the Jewish religious leaders got it. Our friends might not get it. Our friends who don't read the Bible and want to reject the Bible might not get it. But the Jews got it. That's why verse 18 says, For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. They got it. Verse 19. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, uh, truly, truly, and when Jesus uses that kind of phraseology, truly, truly, it's a way to to draw special attention to what he's about to say emphatically. It's a form of expression that Jesus often used preceding some uh, statement that was of extraordinary uh, importance or depth. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing himself unless it is something that he sees the Father doing. Now, that's not a statement of weakness or a statement of limitation, but it's a statement of unity with the Father, both in nature and will. The Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. Jesus is saying, look, I'm always in perfect harmony with the Father. A different role in subordination to the will of the Father, but but equal to the Father, and I'm always in harmony with his will. He's saying, look, it's impossible for me as the Son to act independently from the Father because we share the same nature. We share the same nature. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Again, it's a very clear, specific statement of his own divinity because someone, only someone who is equal with God the Father could do everything that God the Father does. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son of God does in like manner. Now, an old commentator, a guy named John Brown, a long time ago, said this. Did the Father create the universe? So did the Son. Does the Father uphold the universe? So does the Son. Does the Father govern the universe? So does the Son. Is the Father the Savior of the world? So is the Son. Therefore, the Jews did not err when they concluded that our Lord made himself equal with God because that's who he is. So intimately connected with God the Father, he does that which God does. He does all that God does in the same manner in which God does. Surely such a person cannot but be equal with God. 
And that's who he is. God come in the flesh. Now, I'm going to run just a very quick tangent. It won't take me very long, but just somewhat of a side note. Uh, it's an important observation when you read those words. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things he, these things the son also does in like manner. Theologians, guys who like to debate these kind of issues throughout the years, have debated uh, an issue what they call, uh, or a topic they call the impeccability of Christ. It's a discussion on whether or not Jesus, as the God-Man, could have ever sinned. But again, just look at the text. Jesus says here that the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. Can God the Father sin? No. Can God the Father do evil? No. Emphatically, no. I mean, to say anything else would be blasphemy. So if the Son never does anything apart from the Father, independently from the Father, since the Son can only do what he sees God the Father doing, and since God the Father cannot sin... The one who is of like same nature and essence as the Father, the Son likewise can do only what the Father does. Therefore, likewise, it is impossible for the Son to have ever sinned. Full stop. End of tangent. Third statement. Jesus is equal to God in his love. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. Now, the word love here is not agape, the love of will and choice, but it's phileo. It's the love of deep feeling, warm affection that the father feels for his son. And it's the only time in the New Testament it refers to the father's love for the son. Now, the father's love for the son is seen by disclosing to the son everything that he's doing. There are no secrets between the father and the son. There's nothing the Father knows that the Son doesn't know. The Father loves the Son with a, such a, a perfect, eternal, infinite, all-consuming love that he holds nothing back from him, and he gives him all things. He gives him all the treasures of the divine uh, truth uh, because of that love. Uh, Paul, Colossians 1.19, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, speaking of Christ. Colossians 2 and 3, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So the Father has all wisdom and knowledge, so too has the Son all wisdom and knowledge. Since the Father loves the Son so much, he has eternally granted the fullness of everything that he is to the Son, perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom, perfect power, equal to the Father in all ways. And that, that uh, unity is based on a perfect union of love between them, a union of love between God the Father and God the Son. Now John MacArthur in this uh, sermon on this portion of Scripture has a remarkable statement that has a tremendous implication, speaking of the perfect bond of love that exists between the Father and the Son. Again, verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he is doing himself. The reason, MacArthur says, the Father has given everything to his Son eternally, going back and forward, is because of love. He loves him with a love that is incomprehensible. And this is the part that will uh, draw your attention. He says it might shake up your shake you up to hear this but the heart of God's redeeming work is not God's love for you <sighs> I need to sit you mean I'm not the center of the universe no my friends you're not neither am I we live in a world a theological world where we like to put ourselves in the center of the universe the world always already does that very well right but truth is we're not the center of the universe. 
And truth is there are eternal beings, three of them, who live eternally outside of time, who have a plan and a relationship that went on well long before we ever showed up. And they're united in this love relationship that is being carried out in time. It might shake you up to hear this, but the heart of God's redeeming work is not God's love for you, not God's love for me, not God's love for the world, not God's love for the sinner. At the heart of redemption is God's love. The Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. You say, didn't Jesus die because he loved us? Well, in a secondary sense, yes. But in a primary sense, Jesus died because he loved the Father. Didn't Jesus, or didn't the Father send Jesus to the cross because he loved us? Again, in a secondary sense. In a primary sense, he sent the Son to the cross because he loved the Son. You say, how am I to understand that? You're to understand it this way. The whole purpose of redemption, the whole purpose of creation, the whole purpose of the world, the universe, human history, is so that God can collect a bride to give to his son, a bride that is an expression of his love. Every individual believer is a left gift from the father to the son. It is not so much about the father loving you or the son loving you. It's about the father loving the son and the son loving the father. The father loves the son so much, you uh, can give uh, without loving, or he says you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. And perfect love gives a perfect gift, and an infinite love gives an infinite gift. So that infinite love of the Father for the Son deems that the Father will give the Son a redeemed humanity collected one day in heaven forever and ever to praise and serve and glorify the Son and always be an everlasting expression of the Father's love. Got that? God has an eternal plan worked out in time. It has to do with a love relationship that he has with his Son. He wants to give his Son a redeemed humanity who will forever sit in heaven and worship and praise and adore the Son because he is worthy because he has stepped into time and at such great personal cost to himself, redeemed humanity who love him. Have we talked ever from this pulpit the only two kinds of people in the world? Have I ever mentioned that to you? There are people who love the Savior and people who hate the Savior. And in eternity future, there will be people who love the Savior gathered around the throne, worshiping him forever and ever and ever. He goes on, he says, we learned this from 1 Corinthians, that when they are gathered, including us in heaven, and the Father gives the gift to the Son, the Son is going to turn right back around and give us back to the Father so that God the Father may be all in all. So the Father collects a bride. The bride worships the Savior. The Savior gives the gift right back to God the Father, so that God the Father may be all in all. He says, we're caught up in a divine love relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father is willing to send the Son so that he can give the Son the gift of his love. The Son is willing to go to the cross so that he can give back to the Father the gift of his love. That sweeping truth of redemption, this infinite transcendent love that exists between the Father and the Son, and we might add even the Holy Spirit, of course, who is equal in the reason for redemption. God could have gone on being God in a Trinitarian existence and never created anything. But he wanted to give the Son a redeemed humanity that displayed his grace and mercy as an act of his will so that you will forever in heaven be a gift to the Father, from the Father to the Son, that the Son turns right back around and gives to the Father. And because of this love the Father has for the Son, 
He holds back nothing from the Son eternally. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in him. All the fullness of deity dwells in him. That's amazing love. An eternal picture of a Trinitarian love. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. Greater works. Now the greater works that Jesus is referring to are going to be uh, revealed in the next two verses. The first one is the fact that Jesus is equal to God in his power and equal to God in his sovereignty. Verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. It's a pretty bold claim for someone to make if he's just a mere man. I'm not only God, but I give you life. Prove it, my friends, or we lock you up and put a very long-armed jacket behind your back. Right? Now, on one level here in this verse, the, the word life means physical life. And again, it, it speaks of Jesus' ability not only gives physical life, but it really speaks of Jesus' ability to raise the dead physically. He did it three times in the New Testament. He raised uh, the widow of Nain's son in Luke 7. He raised Jairus' daughter in Luke 8, and then Lazarus in John 11. The Bible tells us at the end of the age, uh, Jesus will command all the dead from all the ages to rise, either for judgment or for eternal life. Now, if Jesus has the power to uh, raise the dead physically, the power to give life to whoever he wills, at the end of the age, then most certainly has the power to give spiritual life. Spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. And that's exactly what he says, drop down in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. It doesn't come to judgment, but has passed out of death unto life. Now, if you're remembering our study so far, you're going, well, you know, that's exactly... What he said, wasn't it, to the Samaritan woman regarding the power that he had to give spiritual life to the spiritual dead. John, 14, or John 4 and 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. He gives eternal life because he's the author and creator of life. John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and life was the light of men. That's the characteristic of the person of God. He has life. He is life. He is the originator of life, the giver of life, the source of life, the power of life. He's the one who calls into existence those things, all things. He's the one who gives life. Jesus is the one who created the entire universe. And Jesus is the one, therefore, who gives life to whomever he wishes. There's nothing, listen, there's nothing in existence that has shown up by random chance. Every time you hear people talk about evolution, what you need to listen, the little little red light in your brain needs to be going off, going, you know what they're talking about? They're really talking about attacking the Bible. They're not talking about science. Every argument pro-evolution is an attack on the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means he did it, not by evolutionary chance. 
He calls into existence that which does not exist. Ex nihilo is the word, out of nothing. And everything he called into existence. There's nothing in existence that came into existence by random chance. Absolutely no thing. So Jesus is equal with God in power because he has the ability to make something come to life. He has the ability to cause something that never previously existed to now come into existence. On a physical level and on a spiritual level. Just like when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead in our transgressions. We are made alive together with Christ by the power of God. Only something that God can do. Give life physically and raise the dead spiritually. So Jesus is just straightforward here, folks, affirming his deity. He's equal with God in nature. He's equal with God in his uh, person. He's equal with God in his works. He's equal with God in his love. He's equal with God in his power. He's equal with God in his sovereignty. Now he goes on and says that he's equal with God in his judgment. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes, verse 22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, if Jesus is the sovereign life giver, and he is, he has the authority, the sovereign authority, to judge all men on the last day. John Phillips has an interesting statement in his commentary. He says, The fact that the Lord, the Lord Jesus is the universal judge means that he has personal knowledge of all the countless human beings in all the ages of history. He has detailed acquaintance with endless variety of circumstances of each and every individual. He knows the character of each one of us. He knows our motives, opportunities, hidden passions, mental ability, thoughts, desires, words, acts. He knows the lasting influence, for better or for worse, of our every act and look. Moreover, he has the perfect grasp of all the laws of God by which to judge the world. He has the absolute right to pass eternal sentence without court of appeal and no cases missed. In other words, the Lord is claiming in no uncertain terms, no uncertain terms, again, to be God overall, and that's who Jesus Christ is. He has power, sovereign power to judge. Why? Because God is the judge of the universe. Right? God is the judge of the earth, Genesis 18.26. In Jesus, to Jesus belongs his judgment. Judgment belongs to the Son. The Father has sovereignly given to uh, God, his Son, that responsibility. Again, Jesus came into the world the first time. He didn't come into the world the first time to judge men. He came the first time that men might be saved. But judgment is an inescapable final result of rejecting the salvation and the mercy that God freely offers through his Son, to this world. And very clearly, the Bible teaches that when Jesus comes the second time, he doesn't come again as a babe in a manger. He comes as a conquering king. And he comes to bring divine judgment. You see that in the book of the Revelation, Revelation 19, 11. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. He has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself, and he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. I think I read that somewhere before. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. 
You see it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven and his mighty angels with flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You see it in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There is a terrible final day of judgment coming for those who have rejected Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is equal to God. He is God and full deity in all fashions, all manners, and he is equal to God in judgment. Therefore, the last point, Jesus is equal to God in his honor, his worship. Verse 23, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, and he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now look, if Jesus is not fully God, then this is nothing short of absolute blasphemy. How could a mere man, a created being, say that you should honor him as you honor the God in heaven, God the Father? How could he say, a mere man, say we should worship him? Again, it's a very straightforward claim by Jesus to be God. And the Father's very purpose in entrusting all his works and judgment to Jesus is, verse 23, in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. That makes sense. Right? Because if Jesus is equal in nature, equal in works, equal in power, equal in sovereignty, equal in judgment, he should be accorded equal honor, equal worship. And Jesus goes on and says, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is the test, the ultimate test of those who say they quote-unquote claim to believe in God. It's their view of Jesus. Who do they think Jesus is? If they say they believe in God, but they think Jesus was uh, just nothing more than a good man, a great moral philosopher, teacher, etc., and so forth, then they do not believe in the true and the living God. They believe in a false God. They believe in a God of their own imagination, a God of their own making, a God of their own mind. If they do not honor the Son, they do not honor the Father. 1 John 2 and 23 Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and who confesses the Son has the Father also. Those who claim to honor the Father and yet refuse to worship Jesus Christ as deity are deceived. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc. and so forth. And I don't say that out of anything but kindness because it is the truth. You are deceived. Stop listening to what you're teachers are telling telling you and just read the book the book tells you god wants you to know the truth god wants us all to know the truth jesus again just over and over again clearly repeats the claim that he's god come in the flesh and nobody's going to be okay on the day of judgment unless they understand that unless they honor him and love him and worship him as he really is unless they realize that he is God of very God. You know, I don't know about you, but I talk to people sometimes that say they believe in Jesus. They believe in God. But I look at their lives and I ask the question, are you honoring God? 
Are you worshiping God with your life? Because it's not just in the eternal by and by when we get to up on those clouds, people with, with harps and all that kind of stuff that the vast majority of people wrongly believe is what we're going to do when we get to heaven. It's not then. It's part of worshiping God in Christ in heaven. But it's like, are you worshiping God with your life now? Are you honoring him now with your thoughts, your actions, your attitudes, your money, your time? There's a lot of people who call themselves believers. It's like James chapter 2 says... There's a lot of demons that are believers. But I always say that real Christians, real Christians, real Christianity, biblical Christians look like something in time. We've been raised from the dead, given life. We've been called to be ambassadors for Christ, called to honor him, worship him, not just on Sundays only, but every single day of the week. All of our thoughts, attitudes, actions, people around us. This is Jesus Christ, God of very God. No one's going to be okay on the day of judgment if they don't honor him and worship him. Again, it was God through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 42 and chapter 40, or chapter 42 and chapter 48 says basically the same thing. He says, I'm not going to give my glory to another. Yet it's this very same God that commands us all to honor his son. Paul, Philippians 2, 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name which is above every name, speaking of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and on those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, eventually everyone, everyone either willingly or unwillingly, every man, every woman, every person who's ever taken a breath in God's universe, eventually they will obey the Father's command to honor the Son. Every knee will bow. And from that point forward, it will be some to eternal life and some to eternal destruction. The text comes to a conclusion again, verse 24, Jesus affirming his authority as the giver of life. Again, affirming his deity. Truly, truly, I say to you, he hears the word. He who hears my word believes him who sent me has eternal life. Present tense, right? He does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death unto life. The most important question you can ever answer is who do you say Jesus is? And that answer is that reflected in the way that you're living your life. Presently, currently. The passions, the motivations of your heart. What drives you? What motivates you? Where are you going with your life? 